Welcome to Faster Please, the podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas. Several times a month, I'll feature a lively conversation with a fascinating and provocative guest about how to make the world a better place through scientific discovery, technological innovation, and economic growth. You're also going to want to check out my Faster Please newsletter here on Substack throughout the week for fresh essays, Q&As, and stories from around the internet and around the world. More than 20 years ago, the political scientist Francis Fukuyama characterized the IT revolution as benign, but cautioned that the most significant threat posed by contemporary biotechnology is the possibility that will alter human nature and thereby move us into a post-human stage of history. From Twitter to CRISPR, a lot has changed since then. In this episode of Faster Please, the podcast, Dr. Fukuyama shares his thoughts on those developments and the recent advances in generative AI, as well as the important cultural role of science fiction. Dr. Fukuyama is the Olivier Nomolini Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies. His books include The End of History and the Last Man, Our Post-Human Future, and 2022's Liberalism and Its Discontents among many others. Dr. Fukuyama, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. In our post-human future, more than 20 years ago, you wrote, the aim of this book is to argue that Aldous Huxley was right in a brave new world, that the most significant threat posed by contemporary biotechnology is the possibility that it will alter human nature and thereby move us into a post-human stage of history. This is important, I will argue, because human nature exists is a meaningful concept and has provided a stable continuity to our experience as a species. But then you added, it may be that, as in the case of 1984, and I think, parenthetically, information technology, we will eventually find biotechnology's consequences are completely and surprisingly benign. After 20 years and the advent of social media, and now it seems like possibly a great leap forward in AI. Would you still characterize the IT revolution as benign? Uh, well, that's obviously something that's changed uh, considerably since I wrote that book, because the downside of IT has been uh, clear to everybody. You know, when it was when the Internet was first privatized in the 1990s, most people, myself included, thought, it would be good for democracy because information was power. And if you made information more widely available, that would distribute uh, power more democratically. And it has done that, in fact. So a lot of people have uh, access to information that they can use to improve their lives, to mobilize, to agitate, you know, to push for the protection of their rights. But I think it's also been weaponized in ways that we perhaps didn't uh, anticipate back then. And then there was this more insidious phenomenon where it turns out that the um, the elimination of hierarchies that controlled information that we celebrated back then actually turned out to be pretty important. Uh, you know, if you had a kind of legacy media that cared about journalistic standards, that you could trust the information that was published, but the inter internet really undermined those legacy sources and replaced it with a world in which anyone can say anything, and they do. And therefore, 
we have this cognitive uh, chaos right now where uh, conspiracy theories of all sorts get a lot of credibility because people don't trust um, you know, these hierarchies that used to be the channels for information. So clearly we got a big problem on our hands. That doesn't mean that the biotech is not still going to be a big problem. It's just that I think the IT part has moved ahead very rapidly, uh, but I think the biotech will get there, you know, in time. While I think most of the concern that I that I've heard expressed about AI in particular has been about sort of these kind of science fiction like existential risks or job loss, but obviously your concern has more to do as with in our post-human future, what how it will affect our liberal democracy. Right. Uh, do you and you and you point out some of the 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 downsides of the IT revolution that weren't weren't obvious thirty years ago, but now seem uh, plainly obvious today. Because to me, the coverage of AI has been has been really very very negative, and we've had calls for an AI mm-hmm. pause. Do you worry that we're maybe over? We've overlearned that lesson, and that rather than going into this with a kind of a Pollyannish attitude, we're immediately going into this AI with deep concerns. Is there a risk of overcorrecting? Oh, yeah. The short answer is yes. I think that um, because of our negative experience with social media and the internet lately, uh, we expect the worst from technology. But I think that, you know, the the possibilities for AI actually making certain social problems uh, much better are substantial. And uh, I think that the existential worries about AI are just absurd. And you know, I, I really don't see uh, scenarios under which um, the human species is going to face extinction. Because I mean, that seems to be this Terminator killer, you know, Skynet scenario. And I know a very few, you know, serious experts in this area that think that that's ever likely to uh, to materialize. You know, the the bigger fears I think are more mundane ones about job loss as a result of, you know, advancing technology. Uh, And I think, you know, that's a very complicated issue, but it does seem to me that, for example, generative AI could actually end up complementing human skills and, in fact, could complement the skills of lower skilled or lower educated workers in a way that will actually increase economic uh, equality, you know. So up till now, I think most economists would blame uh, the advance of computer technology for having vastly increased uh, social inequality. Because in order to, you know, take advantage of existing technologies, if you have a better education, uh, you're going to have a higher income, uh, and so forth. But it's entirely possible that generative AI will actually slow that trend because it will give people with uh, lower levels of education the ability to do useful things that they weren't able to do you know, previously. And there's actually some early empirical work that suggests that that's already been, uh, that's already been a pattern. So I, yes, I think you're right that we've kind of overreacted. Uh, I, I just think in general, predicting where this technology is going to go uh, in the next 50 years is a fool's errand. It's sort of like in the you know 1880s, asking somebody, well, what's this newfangled thing called electricity going to do? You know, 
uh, in 50 years. And I mean, anything that was said back then, you know, I think would have been overtaken by events very, very rapidly. Anyone who has sat through uh, previous government hearings on social media has been underwhelmed at the ability of Congress to understand these issues, much less come up with a, a, a vast regulatory structure. So are you confident in the ability of government to regulate AI and uh, whether it's for to regulate, worry about deep fakes or, 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 or what have you? Um, wh- why should I be confident in their ability to do that? Well, I think you've got to decompose the regulatory challenge a little bit. Um, you know, I've been involved here at Stanford. We have a cyber policy center, and we've been thinking about different forms of uh, IT regulation. Uh, and it's a particular challenge for regulators for a number of reasons. I mean, the um, you know, one of the questions you come up with in regulatory design is, is this something that actually can be undertaken by existing agencies or do you actually need a new type of regulator uh, with special skills and knowledge? And I think, you know, to me pretty clearly the answer to that is yes, but that agency would have to be designed very differently because, you know, the standard regulatory design, the agency has a certain amount of expertise in a particular sector and they use that expertise to write rules um, that then get written into law and then things like the administrative procedure act you know begins to apply you know that's what's been going on for example with something like net neutrality uh, where the fcc put the you know the different regulations up for notice and comment and you go through this very involved procedure to write the new rules uh, and so forth. I think in an area like AI, that's just not going to work because the thing is moving so quickly. And that means that you're actually going to have to delegate more autonomy uh, and discretionary power to the regulatory agency, because otherwise they're simply not going to be able to keep up with the speed at which, you know, the technology advances. Now, in normative terms, I have no problem with that. I mean, I think that governments do need to exercise social control over new technologies that are potentially very um, disruptive and, and damaging, but uh, it has to be done in a proper way. Can you actually design a regulatory agency that would have any remote chance of keeping up with the technology? The British have done this. I mean, they they have a, a new digital regulator that you know is composed of people coming out of the IT industry and they've relaxed the you know the kind of uh civil service requirements to be able to hire people with the appropriate knowledge and backgrounds in the United States that's going to be very difficult because we have so many kind of cumbersome you know HR requirements for hiring and promotion of people that go into the federal civil service, you know, pay for one thing is a big issue because uh, we don't pay our bureaucrats enough, right? And if you're going to hire some hotshot tech guy out of the tech sector and offer him a job as a GS-14, it it just isn't going to work, right? So I, I don't think that you can answer the question, can we regulate adequately or not in a simple way? I think that you know, there are certain things you would have to do if you were going to try to regulate this sector. Can the United States do that, uh, given the polarization in our politics, given 
all of these legacy institutions that you know prevent us from actually having a public sector that is up to this task you know that i don't know and i i as you can tell i've got certain skepticism about that is it a worthwhile critique of this sort of regulatory process to think of ai as this sort of discrete technology that you that you need a a certain level of expertise to understand if it is indeed a general purpose technology that will be used by a variety of sectors, all sectors perhaps, can you really have a a regulator, an AI regulator that doesn't de facto become an economy regulator? No, you probably can't. I mean, this is another challenge, which is that, as you say, AI in general is so broad, it's already being used in virtually every sector of the economy. And you obviously don't want a one-size-fits-all effort to, you know, govern the, you know, the use of this technology. And so I think that you have to be much more specific about the areas where you think potential harms uh, could exist. Um, You know, there are different, there's also different approaches to this other than uh, regulation. Um, In 2020, I chaired a Stanford working group on platform scale, which was meant to deal with the, um, the old, <laughs> at that point, it was the, the kind of contemporary problem, but now it seems like an old problem of uh, content mediation on the internet, right? So how do you deal with this problem that, you know, Elon Musk has now revealed to be a real problem that you don't want everything to be available on social media platforms, but how do you actually uh, control that content in a way that, that serves a kind of general democratic public interest. And, you know, as we thought about this in the course of this working group deliberation, we concluded that straightforward regulation uh, is not going to work. I mean, it won't work in the United States because we're way too polarized. And so, you know, you just think about uh, something like reviving the old fairness doctrine that the FCC used to apply to legacy broadcast media. You know, how are you going to come up with something like that? What's fair and balanced, you know, coverage of vaccine denialism? You know, so it's it just it's just not going to happen. And uh, you know what we ended up advocating was something we called middleware, where you would try to you would use regulation to create a competitive ecosystem of third party media uh, content um, regulators, so that. When you used a social media platform, you, the user, could buy the services or make use of the services of uh, a content regulator that would tailor your feed to or your search, you know, on Google to criteria that you specified uh, in advance. And so, if you tended, you know, progressive, you could get a progressive one. If you only like right wing media, you know, you could get a, a you know a content regulator that would uh, deliver what you want. If you wanted to buy only American-made products, you know, you could get a different one. The point is that you would use competition in this sphere because the real threat, as we saw it, was not um, actually so much this compartmentalization as the power of a single big platform. There's really only three of them, right? It's Google, Meta, and now X, or 
you know, the former Twitter that really had this kind of power. And the danger to a democracy was not that you could say anything on the internet. The danger was the power of a single big platform owned by a private for-profit company uh, to have a an outsized role over political discourse uh, in the United States. And you know, Elon Musk and Twitter is a perfect example of that. He apparently has his own foreign policy, which is not congruent with American foreign policy. But, you know, as a private owner of this platform, he's got the power to pursue this private foreign policy, right? So, you know, that was our idea. And so you could use, you know, in that particular case, you could use competition as an alternative to state regulation, because what you really wanted to do was to break up this concentrated power that was exercised by the platforms. So that's you know one approach to one aspect of digital regulation. It doesn't deal with AI. Uh, I don't know whether there's an analog in the AI sphere, but I think it's correct that what you don't want is a single regulator that then tries to write you know broad rules that apply to what is actually you know just an enormously broad. Uh, technology that will apply, you know, in virtually every sector of the economy. In response to the call for a six-month AI pause, critics of that idea pointed to competition with China. They suggested that given the difficulties of regulating AI, we might risk losing the AI race to the Chinese. Do you find that a reasonable criticism? Well, um, so this is a general problem with technologies. Certain technologies distribute power and other uh, technologies uh, concentrate it, right? So the old classic 19th century uh, uh, kind of coal and steel and fossil fuel-based economy tended to concentrate power because, and certainly nuclear weapons concentrate power because you really need to be a big entity you know, uh, in order to build a nuclear weapon, in order to build all the, um, uh, you know, the, the the uranium processing and so forth. Uh, but other technologies like biotech actually do not concentrate power. Like any high school student can actually now use CRISPR, you know, to do genetic engineering and they make biotech labs that will fit in individual shipping containers. So the regulatory problem is quite different. Now, the problem with AI is that it appears that these large language models really require a lot of resources, right? That, um, in, in fact, it's interesting because we used to think the problem was actually having uh, big data sets, but that's actually not the problem. There's plenty of data out there. It's actually building, you know, a, a parallel computer system that's powerful enough to process all the words on the internet. Uh, and that's been kind of the task that only the largest you know, companies can do. So I think that it's correct that um, uh, if we had told these companies not to do this, uh, we would be facing international you know, competitive pressures that would make that a bad decision. However, uh, I do think that it's, it's, it's still a risk to allow that kind of power to be not subject to, you know, some form of democratic uh, control. Uh, if it's true that you need these gigantic corporations to do this sort of thing, those corporations ought to be serving, you know, American national interests. And again, I, I hate to keep referring to Elon Musk, but, you know, 
we're seeing this right now with Starlink, right? So it turns out Starlink is extremely valuable militarily, which has been demonstrated very uh, uh, clearly in uh, Ukraine. So should the owner of Starlink be allowed to make important decisions as to who is going to use this technology on the battlefield and where that technology can be used? I don't think so. You know, I don't think that one rich individual should have that kind of uh, power. And actually, I'm not quite sure. I, I thought that the Defense Department had actually agreed to start paying Musk for the for the Ukrainian use of Starlink. Right. I mean, I think that's the actual appropriate answer to that problem so that Musk, it should not be up to Elon Musk, you know, where Starlink can be used. It should be up to the people that make American foreign policy, the White House and the State Department uh, and so forth. And so I think by analogy, if you develop this technology that requires really massive scale and big corporations uh, to develop it, it should nonetheless be under some kind of state control such that it is not the decision of some rich individual how it's going to be applied. It should be, you know, uh, somehow subject to some kind of democratic control. So I think on a normative level, it, you know, I, I think that's very clear. But the specific modalities uh, by which you do that uh, are, are complicated. You know, for example, you could imagine, let's say there's a gigantic corporation that is run by some lunatic, you know, that wants to use it for all sorts of asocial uh, reasons, you know, proliferating deep fakes or, you know, trying to use it to undermine kind of general social trust in institutions and so forth. Is that okay? Is that a decision that should be up to a private individual? Or, you know, isn't there some public interest in controlling in that in some fashion, right? So I think, I, I hate speaking about this in such general terms, but I think you, you have to settle this normative question and then you can get into the narrower technical question of is it possible to actually exert that kind of control and, and how would you do that? You've questioned in your previous writings um, whether liberal democracy could survive a world with more than one, with both humans and post-humans and we were manipulating human nature. Can can it survive in a world where there are two different intelligences? If we had a human intelligence and we had an artificial general intelligence, would such an entity pose a challenge to our to our civilization, to a democratic capitalist civilization? Yeah, I mean it's it's hard to answer that question. Uh, you can imagine scenarios where it obviously would pose a challenge. You know, one of the big questions is that is whether you know this general intelligence somehow escapes human control and you know that's a that's a tough one i i think that um you know the experts that i trust think that that's not going to happen that ultimately you know human beings are going to be able to control this thing and and use it for their own purposes so again the whole Skynet scenario is really not likely to happen. Um, but, you know, that doesn't solve the problem because even if it's under human control, how do you make sure it's the right humans, right? Because 
this falls into the wrong hands. It could be very, uh, you know, very, very destructive. And that then becomes a political question. Um, so I'm not quite sure, you know, how you want to, you know, how you're going to want to answer it. You mentioned Skynet from the Terminator franchise. Do you worry that we're too steeped in dystopian science fiction? It seems like we can only see the downside when we're presented with a new technology like a biotechnology breakthrough or an AI breakthrough. Is that how it seems to you? I actually wrote a blog post about this. You know, if you look at science, so I, I really read a lot of science fiction. I have my whole life. And uh, there's a big difference uh, between the sorts of stories that you saw back in the 1950s and 60s and the stuff that has come out recently. Uh, you know, it's hard to generalize over such a vast field, but, you know, like space odysseys and space travel uh, was very common. And a lot of that was extremely optimistic, you know, that human beings would uh, colonize Mars and then the distant planets and you'd have a warp drive that would take you out of the solar system and uh, and so forth. And it was kind of a pay on to unlimited human, you know, possibilities. Uh, whereas I do think that, especially with the rise of environmentalism, uh, there was a great, greater consciousness of the downsides of technological advance. And so you got more and more dystopian kinds of imaginings. Now, it's not, uh, it's not a universal thing. And I think, you know, for example, uh, I also wrote a book about two um, kind of global warming related recent science fiction books. So uh, one is uh, Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. And that actually is a very optimistic take on global warming because it's set in the 2050s. And basically the human race has figured out how to deal with global warming. Uh, they do it, I think, through a bunch of very implausible political scenarios Uh but there's a ministry for the future that wisely that, that book seems yeah. a little too comfortable with violence yes. and, and and compulsion uh from yes. my taste. <laughs> yeah. Uh the other one is uh Neil Stevenson's Termination Shock, which uh has a you know, basically um there's a single rich oligarch in Texas that takes it upon himself to put all this sulfur dioxide in the upper atmosphere to cool the earth, and he succeeds. Uh, and uh, it then changes the climate in China and India. And, you know, <laughs> these are, I don't know whether that's optimistic or pessimistic, but I, I actually do think that it's very useful to have this kind of science fiction because you really do have to imagine to yourself what some of the both upsides and downsides will be. So it's probably the case that there's more dystopian fiction, but I do think that if you didn't have that, you wouldn't have a concrete idea of what to look for. If you think about both 1984 and Brave New World, right? these were the big dystopian futures that were imagined in the 1950s, right? And both of them came true in, in many ways, right? And so it gave us a vocabulary like Big Brother, the telescreen, or, you know, epsilons and gammas and alphas and so forth you know, by which we can actually kind of interpret things in the present. And I think if you didn't have that vocabulary, it would be hard to have a discussion about what is it that we're actually, you know, worried about. So yes, I do think that there is a dystopian bias to a lot of that 
work that's done, but I think that you gotta you gotta have it, you know, because you do have to try to imagine to yourself what what some of these downsides are. Uh, you mentioned a couple of books. Are there any films or television shows that you've uh, that you watched that you feel, you know, provide a uh, a plausible, optimistic vision? I don't know whether it's optimistic. You know, one of my favorite uh, book series and then TV series was The Expanse, um, uh, written by a couple of guys that go by um, go by a pseudonym, but. You know, it's not optimistic in the sense that it projects all of our current geopolitical rivalries forward into a future in which human beings have colonized just not just, you know, the outer planets, but also, you know, intergalactically. They've figured out how to move from one place to another, and they're still having these fights, you know, between uh, rich and poor and, and so forth. But I guess the reason that I liked it, especially the early parts of that series when you just had an Epstein drive. I mean, it was just one technological change that allowed you to move, you know, it's sort of like the early days of sailing ships where you could get to Australia, but it would take you six months to get there, right? And so that was the situation early on in the book. And that was actually a very attractive future, right? That all of a sudden human beings had the ability to mine the asteroid belt. They could create gigantic cities, you know, in space where human beings could actually live and flourish. And, you know, that's one of the reasons I really like that, because it was a very human, although there were conflicts, there were familiar conflicts, right? There were conflicts that we are dealing with today, but it was, you know, in a way hopeful because it was now done at this, you know, much larger a scale that give gave hope that you know human beings would not be confined to one single planet, uh, and actually one of the things that terrifies me is that the idea that in a hundred years we may discover that we actually can't colonize even Mars or the Moon. You know that the costs of actually allowing human beings to live anywhere but on Earth are they ju- they just make it economically impossible, and so we're kind of stuck on planet earth and that's, that's the human future. Um, I, I, I wrote a, I wrote a small essay about the expanse where I, I talked about having a positive vision because as I saw it, uh, you know, we were, this is several hundred years in the future and we're, we're still here. We've had climate change, but we're, you know, we're still here. We, we've, we've, uh, you know, expanded throughout the universe. If an asteroid should hit the earth, there's still going to be humanity and people were angry about that essay because this is a future, but there's still problems. Yeah. Yes. Cause, yeah. cause, cause we're still part of that future human beings, you know, getting back to sort of biotechnology and transhumanism and living forever. These things you wrote about in our post-human future, what do you make of the the efforts by by folks in Silicon Valley to to try to extend lifespans from a, a cultural perspective, from your perspective as a political scientist? What do you what do you make of these efforts? I think they're terrible. <laughs> uh, you know, um, I actually wrote about this uh, and and have thought of, about this a lot about you know life extension. Uh, I think it's basically been a disaster. I mean, in fact, I think. Uh, human biomedicine has produced a kind of disastrous situation for us right now, because by the time you get to your mid eighties, 
you know, roughly half of the population that's that old has some kind of long-term chronic degenerative uh, disease. Uh, and I think that it was actually a much better situation when people were dying of heart attacks and strokes and cancer, you know, when they were still in their, uh, you know, 70s. Or, uh, and, you know, it, so it's one of those things where life extension is individually very desirable because no individual wants to die. But socially, I think the impact of extending life is bad. Because quite frankly, you're not going to have adaptation unless you have generational turnover. Uh, you know, there's a lot of literature now. Uh, Neil Howe has just written a new book on this about how important generations are. And there's this joke that economists say that the field of economics progresses one funeral at a time because, you know, basically you're born into a certain age cohort. And to the end of your life, you're going to retain, you know, a lot of the uh, views of, of people that were born, you know, going through the same kind of life experiences. And sometimes they're just wrong. And unless that generation dies off, you're just not going to get the kind of social movement that's necessary. We've already seen a, a, a version of this with all these dictators like Franco and Castro that, you know, refuse to die and modern medicine keeps them alive forever. And as a result, you're stuck with their kind of authoritarian governments for, you know, way too long. Uh, and so I think that Socially, uh, there's a good reason why under biological evolution, you have population turnover, right? And we humans don't live forever. And I think that, you know, what's the advantage of everybody being able to live 200 years as opposed to, let's say, 80 or 90 years? Is that world going to be better? It's going to have all sorts of problems, right? Because you're going to have all of these 170-year-old people that won't get out of the way, right? How are you going to get tenure? If, you know, all the tenured people are 170 years old and there's no way of moving them out of the, you know, out of the system. So I think that these tech uh, billionaires, you know, it's a kind of selfishness that they've got the money to fund all this research so that hope they hope that they can keep themselves alive because they're afraid of dying. Uh, but I think it's going to be a disaster if they're ever successful in, you know, bringing about this kind of population level life extension. And I think we're already in a kind of disastrous situation where a very large proportion of the human population is going to be, you know, of an age where they're going to be dependent on, you know, the rest of society to keep them alive. And that's not a good, you know, economically, that's, that's going to be very, very hard to sustain. Dr. Fukuyama, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Good. It was fun. I love talking about stuff like this. <laughs>